welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Brian Helmkamp, who is the founder and CEO of Code Climate. Brian Helmkamp, welcome to Maintainable. Hey, Robbie, how's it going? Doing great. So I like to dive in and ask people, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software application's code base is being well-maintained? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I think maintainability is a really interesting sort of word because it tends to mean something different to everybody. The way that I think about maintainability is that it has to be evaluated uh, relative to a task at hand. That is to say, it can't be evaluated as a fixed attribute of a piece of code or a code base. So if you have uh, an artifact, maybe a, a module or a class, you know that class or module does not need to be changed, then it, it is maintainable by definition because it suits that, that future world. So I think that maintainability can be defined as the ability for a unit of, of software to be evolved to meet an actual um, need at the present time. The what's your take on the uh, kind of the metaphor that we often find ourselves hearing about and using in the industry of technical debt? Yeah, yeah, this is a, a battleground where I feel like a lot of people like to squabble. You know, I, I find personally that the distinction is not all that helpful in terms of determining what to do on a go-forward basis. So, you know, there's certainly different perspectives around technical debt. And, you know, you have a lot of folks who will say things like technical debt is something that might have to be, you know, incurred intentionally, and that can be a valuable process to make that trade-off. I totally agree with that. There are very frequently trade-offs that need to be made when designing a software program, um, and architectural trade-offs are one example of that. Certainly in other cases, you have situations where, you know, the code could have been written better probably at that time. Maybe there was a corner that was cut for what could be considered a good reason or a bad reason. But at the end of the day, you know, you're only as good as the code base that's in your sort of head ref point in your Git repository, right? Like that's the code that you have to live with. You kind of have to think about what are your priorities as you're moving forward those priorities often change. Um, so it's not a fixed sort of set of priorities in terms of things like the way that we're architecting the code for flexibility or the, the sort of more tactical code maintainability issues like method structure and whatnot. Um, and you sort of figure out what those priorities are relative to the, the technical side and the, the business side. And you try your best to sort of implement alongside those and then what you get is the next, you know, revisions of the software, which which may or may not have, you know, uh, technical debt in them, but hopefully they're achieving the business case, and hopefully you're able to get that alignment relative to what you feel is important as a technical team. As you reflect back on your your own career as a developer before becoming a CEO of a company and having your own product, did you feel like you were using technical debt as a phrase at all in your glossary of software development? 
Yeah, sure. Certainly, I think that that was a you know a phrase that would come into the conversation, especially with with product stakeholders. You know, it feels like there's technical debt in this area. Um, that would be a you know a conversation. If you could go back and give yourself some advice on what you've learned since then, what would you tell yourself for those people that might be earlier on in their career where they hear people using it, may not totally understand it, and like some advice on how to potentially not use it? When I was younger and doing software engineering. Um, I held a lot of ideals around what, you know, great, excellent code looked like. And I feel like it probably created um, some level of anxiety and in some cases unhappiness in me when I had to work on code that did not, you know, meet those, those standards of in my head what excellent code was, you know, at that time. Um, because it would feel like, oh, you know, this this would be be easier if if only this had been written better the first time and, and all that type of thing. And that can feel frustrating and it can feel like you're not being as effective as you could be otherwise. But ultimately, you know, our job as professional software engineers is to kind of get out of the lab and deliver working software that fulfills a business need as best as possible. And so I would encourage myself to kind of take a little bit of a step back to this this broader frame of, well, you know, are we creating value relative to, and all value creation is relative, and are we creating value relative to where we were yesterday? There are a number of interesting challenges in dealing with legacy code bases, actually, that you don't really get to experience if you're only dealing with um, greenfield projects. Um, and those are skills... Um, like any skill that need to be um, exercised and learned over time. Uh, and so I would try to encourage my younger self to treat those as opportunities, uh, working on legacy code and code that has as technical debt. I don't know if the 15-year uh, younger version of me would, would actually appreciate that advice, <laughs> um, but, uh, but that would be the message. Thinking about how I personally, even as a software developer, going through different eras of good enough versus like, ooh, I want to set the bar a little higher or work with other people that set their bar far higher than I could ever feel like I could ever get to, even as someone that like has had a number of really talented software developers work for me, where my bar is far lower than their bar for different reasons. And it's always been like, how do we get this thing in, in line at some point? For those that aren't familiar, maybe kind of pivoting over a little bit as you're reflecting on that in your own, maybe having more of a, a stricter set of ideals, you know, we have tools out there that help us know how to some degree how healthy or maintainable our code is and you built a product called code climate so maybe you can tell our audience a little bit about it if they're not familiar with it what inspired you to begin building it in the first place yeah happy to so uh yeah i'm the founder and ceo of a company called code climate um, we actually have two products now which are both related to bringing data into software engineering processes one of them, which is called quality, is about bringing information about code quality, especially maintainability, into software development workflows. The other, which is called velocity, can be thought of as uh, data-driven insights for software development processes and teams. Uh, and that's a newer product, which we developed a couple years ago. But when we got started, we basically had seen this issue of teams with skilled developers and good intentions run into problems with maintainability as their code bases matured and grew. And so our original hypothesis 
was that, well, you can certainly find a lot of data around code quality, things like static analysis uh, information and test coverage. But most of the developers that I knew at the time, um, and these were mostly you know Ruby developers because my background was in Ruby software engineering, we weren't using that type of information in our day-to-day uh, when we were writing code. So the hypothesis behind code climate originally was, you know, can we take data about code quality, bring it into engineering workflows, and enable software developers to have better conversations about code quality as they're writing the code, make better decisions, and ultimately deliver higher quality code bases. So the way that that works is it tends to be an integration in the GitHub pull request workflow. I mean, people weren't really even using pull requests back when we got started, um, but that's that's how people use it now. And the focus is on uh, at least making sure that you have the information when you're deciding to, to merge a change about how it could impact the future maintainability of the code base so that you can make that informed decision. We've been longtime customers ourselves of code quality product in particular. You know, we haven't necessarily baked it into our PR process necessarily, but we do go, you know, go look at the the reports and kind of get a sense of how the application is grading or another way we use it quite a bit is because we we inherit or do a lot of code audits for our clients. And it's one of the quickest things for us to just be like, all right, let's just add this into code climate, let it run its thing, go look at the reports and that'll help highlight some areas that we should probably bring up. So just some of the work for us uh, in some way that we can then relay to that company's business stakeholders because they're not necessarily going to be diving into the why is this function too long type of conversation, but they want to know some of those high levels. So it's a great product for things like that that we've been able to find. And I think it's interesting thinking about how you could use that on the pull request level to show you that like, hey, you're introducing some things that could be breaking your team's conventions. I know like in the Ruby world, they've got things like RuboCop and other code analysis things, but being able to like provide a more of a higher picture, like, hey, the overall grading of this application is going to go down a little bit more. I also remember that we had a project that came our way last year where it was a PHP app and we don't do PHP, but they were thinking about rewriting it. And they asked us to write, you know, to look at their old code base and we run it into maintainable and into, into the code climate app. It has uh, some metrics or some like, uh, I think it was, I forget the way it's phrased, but there's some metrics in there that kind of give you an indication of potentially how many months or years it might take to clean up the mess. And I think in that, in that one, it was like, over a decade or something. And they're like, that's crazy. We've, we've only been yeah. building this app for five years and now it's going to take 10 years to clean it up. And I'm like, it's probably not inaccurate actually, but I don't know. It was, there's a lot of, I think, useful ways that tools like Code Climate can be quite helpful. So take a little bit, if you don't mind revealing like behind the curtain a little bit of your own organization, like, or how do you organize your engineering teams? I think before we started recording, you mentioned you have about 40 people now. How does, do you have multiple teams working on different products or different areas of the products? How does that kind of, at a high level, look like at, at the moment? Yeah. Well, today it looks like we have about three discrete engineering squads is the term that we're using these days. I would say in terms of the organizational structure of our engineering department, it's something that we look at regularly and have adjusted a number of times over the past uh, year, year and a half. So we've had cases, I mean, our headcount has has changed, our headcount has grown over the past year in engineering, so we've had to make adjustments for that. But we've had cases over the past year where we, you know, we were working in, for example, two separate teams. We merged them together for some period of time, basically based on the, the sort of the nature of the work that we knew the team was going to have to engage in for a, you know three to six months. Um, and we thought that it was going to actually be 
more effective to have them sort of caucusing all in the same group and then split it back out again. So, you know, we think of it, the organization is kind of this living organism that, that needs to be, you know, regularly sort of adjusted to meet the, the new realities. That's interesting. Does your team use anything like Scrum, Kanban type boards to manage your work? How does, what, what tools are you, are you using? Not that we need to get too far in the weeds there, but just like at a high level, what's your kind of approach for that right now? Yeah, so so we run kind of a, a combination of a Kanban and Scrum type process. Um, I mean, I think some people use the word Scrum ban, but it's it's generally a you know a just in time sort of lean process. Um, we don't do estimates. Uh, we focus more on the kind of idea around like what would we be willing to invest in order to achieve this this outcome. Um, this is kind of aligned with some of the philosophy that I've seen the base camp folks talk about, like, okay, uh, we want to make an improvement here, you know, how much are we willing to to sort of invest in that? Like, okay, I, you know, we would be we'd feel really excited to make a, a one week investment in this area, and then working backwards from there into terms of figuring out, okay, well, in a week, we probably can do A and B, but C is just not gonna not gonna happen. And then say, okay, let's try to get to, you know, A and B being complete by the end of the week. Interesting. So kind of Applying a little bit of a time boxing methodology in some ways, I mean, like a cost around some window of time. Yes, we prefer to to sort of focus on whenever possible fixing the the time period and then adjusting the scope to sort of fit within that. Of course, that you know that is easy to say, um, and in some cases uh, tricky to do, depending on the nature of the work. Are there types of uh, processes that you've tried to implement that you? say 10 years ago would have thought, no way, that sounds overkill for any team that you would have been part of? Well, I mean, we've, we've migrated to JIRA. There was certainly a time uh, in my career when that sounded like the, you know, the least appealing uh, potentially project management tool. Um, it had this reputation of being big and clunky um, and used in these, these enterprises. Um, but I actually have been really enjoying it. The JIRA user interface has gotten quite good. And you can kind of see uh, where there's a lot of, of power there in terms of giving you what you need. So that's probably one of those um, one of those things that we've we've shifted on. I know we've been using Jira for about six or seven years. I think I remember earlier on, but prior to that, we had evaluated it and been like, "This is feels so overkill. This is so complicated. Like you need like a." In the same way that I feel about using a lot of like AWS features when you don't really understand everything that's in there, it's like there's Jira is very powerful. I think they've definitely simplified the onboarding experience for teams to be like, all right, here's some kind of useful defaults to work with. And then you can extend where I feel like a decade ago, it was a lot of like customizing to figure out how to make it work for your team. And there's, there's still areas of Jira that I really don't understand how it fits together. But <laughs> anyways, without getting too big long spiel about that, is there any other types of processes that you're finding your team has kind of pitched or is now doing that you might not have thought about like from a day-to-day development standpoint do you do a lot of pairing or things like that at all yeah we do um we do rfcs for some changes those are basically write-ups that are stored in a separate git repository of a proposed change we try to use those sparingly uh, because they do uh, sort of involve an extra cycle which doesn't you know isn't focused on sort of writing working software and so I think that's a very careful balance. 
in terms of making sure that you're not spending a bunch of time writing what effectively turns into a spec um, and then gets you know thrown out the window when the when the coding starts. But we found that those are useful when we're doing changes that have a pretty high degree of engineering precision that needs to be applied. Um, so, for example changes that might affect the security of the application. We're working on one right now that's for an auto-provisioning feature, and it has integration points with SAML and OAuth. And you know, then there's, there's the schema changes that need to be made to sort of implement that. And so for those types of things, it can be quite helpful. But I think we really need to be you know, careful about going too, too overboard on that type of thing. That makes sense. Is it safe to assume that even a tool like Code Climate Quality has incurred some of its own technical debt, or is you have all all ease across the board there? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, certainly, right? Um, that application we started working on that about nine years ago. I wrote some of the initial code, so it definitely has uh, its areas that that are in need of improvement, but I don't know if this is a controversial opinion or not. Um, I feel like a high-functioning software team, and I'll, I'll sort of scope this down a bit, a high-functioning software development team working in a Ruby on Rails code base, um, which is what the quality uh, application is built on, can do quite a good job of maintaining an application that is well-structured for a long period of time without having to take on a bunch of you know big technical debt reduction efforts and that type of thing. What I, what I found with Rails and one of the things that really appealed to me um, when I got started building Rails applications is that it is inherently sort of oriented towards a set of concepts that do make applications easier to conceptualize and, and implement. Up until the point where it doesn't, and there are certainly cases for that, um, you know, certain types of super complex business logic that don't map well to active record models can, can be quite thorny um, in a Rails code base. But if you can kind of be heads up about those, be heads up about, you know, the way you're thinking about things like class and method structures, duplication, which can, can always be a challenge, then you can have a code base which grows for a long period of time grows significantly in size and is still quite uh, high quality um, at the end of that that period. So I think the code climate scores for our quality application are, are uh, around a, an A or B level at any given point in time. And it's, it's kind of stayed there. Now, there's a bias, of course, because the algorithms that are in the quality application that assess code quality of a Ruby application are the algorithms that our team uh, ourselves implemented. Um, so they certainly are, are cognizant of them. But I think it is it is possible if you do it carefully. Do you feel like your team has a good process for managing things like as uh, new versions of Ruby on Rails comes out, for example? I think that sometimes it gets kind of labeled as technical debt when your application starts to fall behind a few versions or, or so. Do you feel like your team's been able to be pretty successful at keeping somewhat up to date on that stuff? Yeah, you know, most of our dependencies are quite up to date. There are, you know, occasionally cases where something falls a bit behind. Some of that work we handle with a rotation type uh, arrangement. So we do, for example, uh, monthly security audits where we go through and check on a bunch of different things and make sure that everything is, you know, as you would expect it to be from a security standpoint. 
And one of those things that we look at during those um, security audits is you know, dependencies and making sure that we are where we want to be. When we allocate engineering effort for performing something like a security audit, we try to make sure we're budgeting in time, not just for, for auditing, but also to take you know, corrective actions you know, as part of that. Um, in some cases, we'll spin up separate you know, cards that maybe need to go be assigned in, a, in an independent process. But in a lot of cases, we're just you know, making those changes right as we go through the, the audit process itself. We'll be back with our interview with Brian in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in our industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Brian Helmkamp. I know leading up to our conversation, you touched a little bit on, you know, we would talk about how things are within your own engineering team, but I'm imagining you get to interact to some level with your with your customers. What sorts of common problems are you seeing surface themselves across clients that you're interacting with on maybe a consultative side about helping them make sense of the data that, that they're being provided from your application? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, we have spent a lot of time working with thousands of engineering organizations on, you know, some form or another um, on issues related to, to code quality um, and certainly have a ton of conversations about that type of thing. And we've learned a lot over the years. When it comes to code quality, one of the things that I think is important to kind of keep in perspective is the why behind it, right? So, you know, you can talk about the maintainability of something and there's this question of, well, well, why does that actually matter, right? And it kind of almost sounds like a silly question, right? Of course, it matters because we want better code and we want better code so that we can deliver quickly. But that, that second part is, is really important. You know, it's often the case that, that CEOs don't really care about maintainability, they care about their customers. They care about their their teams being happy um, and having high employee morale and retention. And they care about profits so that they can you know build a sustainable business. But unless you know something that you're doing is connected to one of those types of priorities, it's going to be difficult to make a case to a CEO why it's important. Now, so the if you kind of go to the next level down, then you're looking at VPs of engineering, right? Interestingly, uh, I would say that we, we've seen that many VPs of engineering don't really care about maintainability as its own sort of priority. What they care about is delivery. So, you know, shipping code quickly and also predictably. And they care very much about their teams. So again, the, the sort of morale and retention of their, their software engineers. Software engineers are can be difficult to hire. They spend a lot of money on training them. They want them to sort of be around for a long time and be able to feel effective. So that's kind of, once you go through those two levels, then you can get to maintainability, right? Which is that we want the code to be maintainable so that we can deliver our on our priorities rapidly and effectively and predictably. And so that the engineers, when they're delivering on those priorities, they feel efficient and engineers who feel efficient tend to have high morale. So I think 
the first thing that we, we often talk about with clients is, is kind of popping that why stack to get sort of all the way up there because you don't want to have a case where something like a metric inadvertently becomes a goal in and of itself, right? You can have metrics that there's a lot of valuable information you can get from, from metrics. And, you know, our entire business in, in a way is built around data insights, metrics, quantitative information around software and software delivery processes. But you don't want to kind of have the, the tail wagging the dog. The data can be very useful for doing things like diagnosis. Um, so you mentioned, for example, looking at a new code base and, it, you know, you're not going to ask somebody to read 50,000 lines of code to sort of assess what's going on. Um, you can use tools for that so you can get value from data there. And then you can also get value from data in terms of like verifying outcomes. So we wanted to, you know, reduce the dependencies over here and we were successful in doing that. And we have a data point that shows that, but uh, you don't want it to be devoid of context. We'll work with teams on, you know, figuring out what their priorities are, figuring out what their strategy is in order to implement those priorities and then try to equip them with the best uh, tooling and visibility and information in order to, to do that, both in terms of a, a day-to-day workflow. So getting information like in pull requests around things like copied and pasted code, as well as at a, a higher level looking sort of retrospectively across periods of time and saying, okay, this is how things are trending. You make a lot of good points in there about how, how teams are, I know that developers often struggle to bring up technical problems with say product owners the other stakeholders because it's a it's like they're having different conversations like well is this just because you have a preference for code being done in a certain way or maybe you disagree with how something was done in the past and you want to approach that with this would make my life easier if we could clean this up is sometimes sometimes the conversation but sometimes it's just this is a problem over here we need to take care of it at some point and that doesn't always easily translate to like okay great here's a thumbs up go ahead and Go ahead and prioritize that over the next sprint or whatever. Hearing you talk about how even like the validity of your product is reliant on reframing that conversation to not be, here's a reporting tool that just gives you just like keeping like some sort of big brother look over the code from a, you know, like, how's my team doing versus a, this is a tool that if we can start moving, can you prove that if we use tools like this to give us more information and we can say, hey, as, as we're cleaning things up, it's improving our team's morale, improving retention, making it easier for us to bring in and attract the talent we want because nobody wants to, to join a company that has a bunch of huge messes. And There are developers that like to roll their sleeves up, but if it's a too big of a challenge to get to that you know, or to sell them on improving things, this is, you know, as, as a consultant, this is where I get to get pulled in all the time. But then we hear the same conversations that like, well, it's not a priority right now. And so they give up a little too soon. Sometimes developers will, they feel like I've, I've brought this up a bunch of times. I get pushback on a no because I asked if we could do that. But sometimes they don't always, what kind of advice could you offer people like that, that they might already feel like they've went down that road. They've raised their concerns and maybe felt like, well, apparently it doesn't matter to the business. And so I'm not going to keep complaining and I'll just do my job and call it a day each day when it comes to code, but I, until I go find some other job one day. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, um, first and foremost, sort of, it can be helpful to get an understanding of the, the context that the, you know, the company or the team is in from a, you know, from a business perspective, for example. So, you know, learning to speak the language of, you know, stakeholders in your organization and learning what, you know, what is the CEO sort of thinking about? Hopefully the CEO is doing a good job of communicating 
um, with the entire organization, you know, how they think about where the, the company and the product is in the market and what that suggests in terms of the way the company needs to operate. But try to put yourself in the shoes of those sort of people on the business side and what they're trying to achieve. So, you know, you kind of mentioned that in an organization that has really bad code, it can be difficult to attract and retain talent. And that that's certainly the case. But I'll tell you what, a company with great code, but no revenues becomes a crappy place to work over time. It might be a great place to work for a while when the, the VC money is flowing and everybody can have their sort of own microservice and feel great about it. But if that software is not ultimately generating revenue, the whole organization is going to feel pretty crummy after some amount of time when, when the, the shoe drops on that. So um, you kind of have to understand, you know, which context are you in? Is the context that you're in, look, we don't have any revenue or not enough revenue, and we need to solve a, figure out what customer problem we can solve to deliver value that then we can sort of scale up. Um, and this gets to this question of product market fit. Uh, if you're pre-product market fit, and you're in an engineering organization and you're talking to, you know, a business stakeholder about maintainability, it's a challenge, right? And it's partially it's a challenge because a code base that has no business value is is sort of maintainable by definition in the sense that it should just be deleted and replaced with something that does deliver business value. And, you know, for better or worse, it often takes iterations of a product in order to get to something that does deliver business value. But if you're on the other side of the coin, you know, you're working at a company that has achieved product market fit, and therefore it's a, a going concern. It is a expectation that that business will exist, you know, 10 years in the future financially because it's got the financials to, to do that. Then I think it's helpful to frame things in terms of, what future advantage will be conferred based on this additional work. So so maybe it's something like, look, it's it's expensive for us to think about shifting our data storage strategy and using a new sort of database. But if we were on a new database, we sort of would have these other advantages. Can we be able to implement this set of features much quicker? And that can be compelling. And then the the other sort of advice I would give is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. So sometimes I feel like there's this, not intentionally, everyone's kind of coming at it with trying to do things that they think are, are positive, but almost this sort of like standoff around, well, you know, we need to do A, B, C, D, E, otherwise we're, we're sort of, we're, we're going to be screwed, right? So that kind of, you know, the developers are sort of negotiating, right? And they feel like they need to insist on, you know, that everything A, B, C, D, E all need to be done. And then that kind of can cause the product side or the business side to sort of recoil and say, well, wait a minute, we, if that's the case, like we can't do any of that because, you know, we just, we're never going to get any new features out the door. So I think it's incumbent on, you know, all roles within a software delivery organization to sort of understand that very few things are you know, accurately described in absolutes, that there are almost always um, cases where you can sort of find a middle ground and then start to build up that trust. I think a big part of it is what I've seen in engineering organizations is sometimes engineers don't trust that they will be able to ever revisit something. And there's like a lot of baggage in that statement, right? Like it's certainly people have probably worked in organizations where they felt that that was the case. 
the statement itself assumes that there will be a need to revisit something. And, you know, to my previous point around maintainability being relative to the the task at hand, that might not be the case. So I think on the one hand, the engineers need to kind of get comfortable with the idea that, yeah, we might never get back to it. And that's okay. Maybe that module just ends up getting deleted and taking out taken out to pasture in, in a couple of years because it didn't you know end up delivering a feature that that was valuable. And then on the other side, I think the business stakeholders need to feel comfortable that you know the engineers, because they have this specialized knowledge and are so close to the code, if they are doing their job well and you're communicating with them effectively about future priorities, they are able to sort of make those inform decisions around prioritization and not feel like you have they have to run every one of those questions back through a business stakeholder, which adds a lot of time and, and sort of unneeded communication loops. I think you make a lot of really good recommendations for people to kind of, you know, encouraging, you know, people listening to really reflect on, as you, as you said, in your words, uh, think about the context that they're in and knowing that there's different stages of a, a business and you can be have the most perfect maintainable code base, but if there's no customers or product market fit there, then it's basically worthless. And it's a big, it's an investment that it's not going to return anything to the business. And so you're not going to be able to maintain it anyways. So some good advice to kind of reflect on that a little bit and think about where you are as a business, but also doesn't mean to stop fighting the good fight and, you know, encourage some good best practices here and there and using things like code climate to help you like have some sort of knowledge about, and some data to back up how your sentiment or your subjective feelings you might have as a developer, like using some tools that can objectively provide some feedback loops through your team, I think is quite helpful as well. So I know that um, you're a busy person and you've got a number of things to take care of, but a couple of last quick questions. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Yeah, so um, those are best taken a look at on the Code Climate blog. That is where sort of our best thinking tends to to sort of land. Um, and that is at, uh, that can be found at codeclimate.com. What non-software development book do you find yourself recommending to people in our industry a lot? Yeah, so so I kind of knew that this question was coming. I got a tip off from a little bird that I might be asked this. And I spent some time thinking about it. It's kind of interesting because, you know, all of my day tends to be um, focused on software development. We build software tools for software teams. Um, and so that can can sort of be very meta sometimes. So I thought I would answer a slightly different question, which is kind of like, what book would you sort of recommend to somebody, a software engineer who wants to uh, maybe better improve maintainability or understand how to get maintainability sort of work done in their organization that's not a software engineering related book. And what I would do is I would figure out what your CEO is reading, find a way to read whatever book they would recommend about your particular industry, um, because it can give you a lot of context in terms of trying to communicate more effectively in the language of the business stakeholders who are around you. So I think it's going to vary for every software engineer, depending on the team and the products that they're working on. But I would say, find you know that best book about whether it's media or advertising or e-commerce the domain that you're working in and spend a little bit of time getting familiar with you know how people are talking about things in that industry um, because that's going to lead you to a better ability to communicate with the rest of your organization and then you can contextualize conversations about code quality architecture and maintainability through those lenses which can be very helpful I think that's some really good advice on seeking out that. So any tips on how to ask a CEO outside of just dropping a quick email? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, my experience is that CEOs uh, actually love to be pinged about these types of things. Um, so do not feel like your CEO is a uh, scary person to talk to and they don't want to hear from you. They love to, to share and they spend a lot of time thinking about all these types of things. So I would send them that Slack DM uh, and it will probably be uh, well received. I think so too. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this was great. Sorry I have to run uh, today, but I would love to come back again and and, uh, continue another conversation. That would be awesome. Thanks again. Oh, 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 oh.